0: Hi everyone and welcome to our latest criminal case. On April 6, 2017, in Dornbach, a small community near Strasbourg, a horrifying drama shook the peaceful surroundings. Beatrice Bowe, a 60-year-old retiree, was found in her home stabbed 36 times in addition to her face being removed. For citizens in Dornbach, this was the ultimate shock. Who could have done anything against this woman, whom everyone knew affectionately as Granny Football? By delving deeper into her personal life, law enforcement discovered the underside of a poisonous, toxic power struggle that Beatrice Bow had with her future daughter-in-law, Aline Art. War had already been declared when this pretty 35-year-old hairdresser first met Jean, Beatrice's beloved only son. The elder woman considered this relationship as a terrible betrayal. She had considered her son as her own property, her one and only true love and the one person who was able to understand her. No other woman had the right to take him from her, especially not Aline. Could rivalry, jealousy and resentment have been sufficient motives for committing a crime of such barbaric cruelty? If not, then what was the real reason behind the murder of Granny Football? That's exactly what we'll find out in today's criminal case which was suggested to us by Denise Kay. It was the afternoon of April 6, 2017, in Durnbach, a small commune located south of the city of Strasbourg. Durnbach looked much like any other charming Alsatian village where life was good and where there were strong ties among families and neighbors, just like in the past. Just beyond the bustles of the downtown and towards the commune's outskirts, there was a pretty unobscured red brick house protected by a large fir tree. The most significant feature of this house was that it overlooked two football fields. Look Yannick, the dog is loose outside. Beatrice probably forgot to bring him back in. While he happened to be driving past his cousin's house in his car, Yannick's caller and his wife Elodie noticed Beatrice's Labrador running around alone without a leash. They brought the dog to their car and went to ring the doorbell of the red brick house. They were shocked to find the door partially opened and to discover that the fire alarm had been activated. Was there a fire raging inside the house? Beatrice, where are you? Beatrice, can you hear me? There was no response. They got very worried and called the fire department, who arrived on the scene a few minutes later. As the Schulers waited outside, they eagerly watched for any kind of sign from the firefighters. What had happened to Beatrice and where was she? They tried calling her on her cell phone, but there was no answer. A half-hour later, firefighters eventually emerged with a hunch over body that was completely incinerated and set it down on the lawn. As Aloydy drew closer, she let out a terrified scream. Oh no, it's Beatrice! Oh my god, it's her! Beatrice Bao was no stranger in Dernbach. In fact, she was almost like a part of the commune's heritage mostly because of her involvement and love for the town's football team. Since she herself was an ardent fan of the sport, Everyone affectionately referred to her as the granny football. Elodi and Yannick were in a complete state of shock. They would never have imagined that one of their relatives would one day suffer such a terrible fate. Burnt and probably asphyxiated by smoke, trapped inside her house and unable to call for help. In the fire department's opinion, this appeared to be a household accident, a gas can that had exploded or a short circuit. But upon examination, Beatrice Bao's body, everything suggested that she died in excruciating pain. Her body was still rigid and stiff. Her face was quite red and her neck and her clothing were soaked in blood. Early in the evening, the scientific division of the police was called in for backup and they made many more discoveries. There were charred bits of newspaper scattered all over Mrs. Bao's house, in the kitchen, under the stairs and in front of the door. According to them, the fire had started around the body of the deceased as there was an imprint of the corpse on the floor in front of the entrance. Law enforcement eventually negated the possibility of the case being a household accident because everything suggested that Beatrice spouse was attacked, killed, and the fire was a way to hide the murder. She had died much earlier and her body burned after that. News of the death of the sexagenarian deeply upset the citizens of Dernbach, a murder so barbaric that it concerned the townspeople. So then, what really happened in the house that was usually so peaceful? At the hospital in Strasbourg, Beatrice's autopsy revealed further details. The retired woman died suffering horrible pain. She had been stabbed 36 times in the chest and throat. Her clothes were soaked in blood. Her arms and hands were covered in bruises, clear signs that she had been beaten by her murderer. Contrary to what Beatrice's cousins and the fire department thought, Her face was not burned, but rather it had been atrociously mutilated. It was a pure slaughter. The top of her skull, as well as the skin of the scalp, was literally removed. Her face looked like the worst. The killer had removed all the nerves and the whole top portion of the faces, which subsequently was never to be found. According to French forensic records, never before in criminal history a corpse was so savagely mutilated in such a horrific state had been found. According to the medical examiner, the killer was determined to kill the old woman before burning down the house. In fact, the fire occurred well after she had died. With this information, the police prosecutor's office in Strasbourg decided to launch a criminal investigation into the murder. Beatrice Bau was a widow and the mother of an only child, a son named Jean. Her only other relatives were some cousins who also lived in Dornbach and the surrounding areas. When they learned about the real circumstances of her death, they were completely devastated. The violent and horrific murder of granny football shocked all of Alsace. Never in the region's history had a crime of such magnitude been ever committed before. In Durnbach, where she had always lived with her husband and their son, she had no enemies. On the contrary, she was a colorful local figure, even though she was often very outspoken. Her tough and hard demeanor had made people smile more than inciting anger. But above all, Beatrice Bau was an absolute fan of football, the local sport. Her role as a passionate supporter had in fact earned her some notoriety in the area. She never missed a game for anything in the world. She was always the first one in the stands and shouted at the stragglers in her Alsatian slang with a heavy German accent, taking on the role of both coach and trainer, although she was neither. And this story, with its very crucial ending, had begun appropriately in Dernbach's fields. Since its creation in 1921, the local club FC Dernbach had become a real institution in the region over the years, the backbone of the commune. The club was the only thing that could bring everyone in town together and most people usually went to a game every weekend, as if they were going to visit a member of the family. At the club, everyone knew Beatrice Bau one of the longest and most active members, also took over the ownership of the location. A short woman in her 60s, with red hair, Beatrice was thin, agile, and full of energy, always moving about and watching everyone's work. Within the club, Beatrice took care of everything, from keeping the locker rooms clean, to collecting the members' dues, to scheduling the game, to stocking the bar, buying groceries, and other logistics. She was everywhere and top of everything. The proximity of her house, which directly overlooked the club's two fields, made her duties a little easier since she didn't have to travel far. When she wasn't going after the players on the Dernbach team, she shifted her attention to the young people who hung out on the lawn without permission. In fact, her window was a premium vantage point that allowed her to have an overview so that she could keep an eye on everything that went on. Beatrice had a habit of treating the football field as if it were her own. If we looked for her, we'd found her. She was a very direct, loud, and reckless woman who wasn't afraid of anybody despite her short stature. Her presence was like a part of the scenery, recalled an old friend. Every day many people paid the price for her infamous temperament and her in-your-face demeanor, starting with her own son, Jean Bao. Yet Beatrice loved her son. They had a close relationship, and he was very devoted to her. But Jean was not a little boy anymore. He was a 29-year-old man, and that was where the strangest part of the story began. Beatrice and Jean lived together in a lovely two-story red brick family home surrounded by an enormous garden. Beatrice was a retired secretary who had been a widow for the past 20 years. She planned on filling the remainder of her days by taking care of her home, her shopping, the football club, and spending time with her ever-present son. As for Jean, he was a landscape gardener who worked in Strasbourg for a redevelopment company and on the weekends he maintained the grass on the club's two football fields. Just like his mother, Jean Bao was a football enthusiast and this shared passion brought them even closer. In fact, he was also the goalie for team two. With his mother, Jean Bao might have been described as a good son, a bit old-fashioned, loyal and attentive to her needs, and obedient. He never contradicted her. And if there ever was an argument, it was always Beatrice who had the last word. In short, she was the one who wore the pants in the family and it had always been that way. It was unthinkable that the situation could ever change. On weekends, the people in Dernbach usually saw mother and son driving by in their car to shop or to have lunch at a restaurant in Strasbourg. Beatrice doubted her son. When he came home from work, he always found the table set, his clothes cleaned and ironed. He had gotten into the good or bad habit of anticipating his every little need even before he had expressed it. As for her son, he allowed her to do as she pleased. He certainly enjoyed being pampered all the time. Jean was described as being rather a scatterbrained, a bit of a dreamer, a bit wishy-washy and easy to manipulate. He had a constant need to be guided and directed and his mother excelled at playing that role. He never made any decisions without consulting her beforehand. And that meant every decision, both major and minor. Whether buying a new car or buying a new pair of shoes, it first required his mother's approval. For both mother and son, this routine had become comforting and almost essential over time. Nothing nor anyone could ever upset this balance and nothing was supposed to upset this cozy, peaceful life. Are you Miss Art? Yes, that's me. Do you have some time to answer a few questions? Yes, of course. What this is about... The murder of your mother-in-law, Mrs. Bao. No? What are you talking about? No, it's not possible. I just saw her this morning. Two police officers arrived at the football club's locker room to question Ellen and Ard, visibly upset by the news. The young blonde took a few moments to regain her composure before narrating the unusual things that she had seen that morning. The police officers waited to hear what she had to say. At around 8.30... When she had just arrived at the club, Aline Art said that she had heard the slamming of a car door. When she stepped outside, she found herself face-to-face with a couple of gypsies. They asked her if she had any work that she could offer them. Reluctant to let them onto the premises, she suggested that they go ask the city hall. However, instead of following her advice, they headed towards the home of Beatrice Bau. She was able to get a head start and arrived at the elderly woman's house before they did. Once she was there, Aline told her not to open the door for anyone because there were some unsavory people hanging around. Then she described how they went to sit down in the kitchen and that Beatrice made some coffee. They had a small talk before eventually getting around the topic of planning Jean's upcoming birthday celebrations. After that, she went back to the club to finish the work that had been interrupted. The police took Aline Art's testimony very seriously especially since it provided significant details about the two suspects. She related the facts with a disconcerting accuracy and provided a very keen, precise description and no detail was left omitted. She described the vehicle, the color, and the material of the clothes that they were wearing as well as their physical appearance. She had even provided them with the license plate number of the truck that the man was driving. Based on the strength of this testimony, the investigators believed that they had their first lead. Their investigation began by speaking with travelers and their families in Durnbach commune and surrounding areas. However, they were not able to find anyone who matched the description that Aline had given them. As for the villagers, there were lingering questions. On the day of Beatrice spouse's death, no one had seen the so-called white trailer driving by with anyone inside. The investigators began to have a few nagging doubts. Why would this pair of gypsies have wanted to inflict so much pain on Beatrice Bell? Why would they have to subject her to such relentless cruelty by stabbing her 36 times in the chest, setting the house on fire, and removing her scalp? Why? To find out the answer to that question, they decided to make a detour to the victim's home to see if any items had gone missing. The house did not appear to have been burglarized. The investigators even found jewellery and cash close to €800 Euros hidden in one of the closets. Additionally, all of the other valuables in the house were still there and hadn't been touched. Aside from the damage caused by the fire, everything seemed to be in order. Nothing had been open or out of place. According to the police, Mrs. Bao's murder did not appear to be a crime committed by an ordinary thief who had randomly chose to rob a house. Even an amateur burglar wouldn't have stabbed an elderly woman 36 times just to steal a few hundred euros and a handful of jewelry. That seemed erratic and foolish. Clearly, there were some inconsistencies in the scenario that Aline Arth had provided. She would have to be questioned a second time. That will be 60 euros, please. Here you go. Thanks. Have a nice day. Aline Arth loved working as a hairdresser and devoted herself to its body and soul she liked that her customers left her to stop smiling. Of course, there were some difficulties people from time to time, the fussy ones, the ones who were never satisfied, and the hagglers, those who quibbled over the cost of a blow-dry, but fortunately, they were only a minority. Elaine liked to think of herself as a hair psychologist, who knew how to give a woman back her confidence when she no longer liked the reflection she saw staring back at her in the mirror with the help of a pair of scissors and some highlights. 35 years old, tall blonde with electric blue eyes, always smiling and flirtatious, Aline could be best described as a strong woman. She was already a mother of two small children and enjoyed taking care of her physical appearance, especially since she owned a beauty salon. The worst thing she could do was to be seen looking less than perfect in front of her customers. She had already been living in Durnbach for some time after having lived in Strasbourg. After suffering abuse from her violent husband, she eventually asked him for a divorce, took the children, and moved as far as possible to forget about him. In Dernbach, she had taken over a hairdresser's business and quickly went to work. She noted how the people in the province seemed to be closer, less egocentric, and more compassionate. She was amazed on her first day at the shop when a client, who didn't even know her, systematically began asking her a whole series of questions about the reason for her move if she was married or single, if she planned to move there and start a new family. Soon Aline adopted the local customs and also took pleasure in dishing out dirt. She dared to look at people straight in the eye and say exactly what was on her mind in a very direct manner, which was typical of those from the Alsatian countryside, without fuss or pretension. Arlen Seth also quickly understood that the whole commune's social life was centered on the local football team, the FC Dornbach. The club served as an office, fitness center, and a meeting place where all topics of concern to the commune were discussed. It was also like the town hall, the post office, the pub, and singles bar all rolled into one. The forecast called for good weather on the weekend, and so Aline decided to bring her children to play at the club. While she was sitting in the stands, the hairdresser soon noticed the goalie for Team 2 was staring at her. It seemed like he was more focused on her than on the game. She waved at him and smiled engagingly, but the young man suddenly turned away, obviously embarrassed. No matter, she decided to speak with him in the locker room when the game was over. For a moment, Aline's attention drifted from the goalkeeper to the tiny woman with short hair, the color of carrots, dressed in a sky-blue turtleneck, and an old pair of faded jeans, sitting next to the coach and making threatening gestures to the players on the team too. Jean, how many times have I told you to keep your eyes on the ball? For crying out loud, what the hell are you looking at? My poor boy, are you dreaming or what? The stream of French words then gave way to a slew of insults in the Alsatian patois. Everyone around started laughing heartily. That's how it was whenever granny football came to one of her games. The goalie's face immediately turned as red as his jersey. A mama's boy, Aline, concluded with a smile on her lips. It would never work. Yet a relationship between the two soon developed. The two young people quickly began to care about each other. While Aline was used to getting attention from men, for Jean, this was the first time that a girl had so openly expressed an interest in him. He quickly fell madly in love with the pretty blonde haired dresser. This sudden relationship was also a windfall for the young woman. Jean represented the polar opposite of her ex-husband, the father of her children. Despite the feelings that she had for him, she was also able to look at the things pragmatically. Besides the fact that he was an uncomplicated and easygoing boy, he also had, more importantly, a beautiful home, a steady income, a nice car, and probably an inheritance of a few million euros, held in trust with a notary waiting to be released. Jin Bao, like any other boy who had lived with his mother for a long time, still bore the scars. She was terribly shy, lacked confidence, was a bit wishy-washy, a bit ordinary, but nevertheless, he was still polite, kind, and even-tempered. He never raised his voice, even when he was frustrated. On the other hand, Jean Bowie's ego experienced a complete upheaval. He was extremely flattered that such an attractive woman would be so interested in him. That was how their romance and their relationship began, in secret. Jean Bao, who usually told his mother everything, felt that he was about to cross a line for the first time in his life and he was not troubled by it. In fact, quite the opposite. In June 2017, an investigation into the death of Beatrice Bao continued in charge environment. Police officers searched the victim's house. They continued to make frequent trips back and forth to look for potential new clues that even the most seasoned investigators might have missed out. Their most recent discovery indicated that there were no traces of a break-in. Mrs. Bao's cousins, the first to arrive on the scene, reported that they had found the front door wide open and the key still hanging in the lock. The police officer concluded that Miss Bao had already known the person who murdered her. It seemed like that it would ultimately be someone from her own circle. The investigation then took a new turn and this time it focused on her immediate family. They wanted to determine if this story might have somehow involved money. Jean Bao was at work when he received a call from the police. They requested that he should report to the headquarters as soon as possible. When he arrived at the police station, Jean was stunned to learn that he was one of the primary suspects in the case. Since he was the sole heir, Jean probably wanted to end his mother's life prematurely in order to get his hands on the life insurance money. During her lifetime, Mr. Bao Took out a life insurance policy, also had a bit of a saving, and all the inheritance was estimated to be around 20,000 euros. After he had been questioned, Jean Bao was taken into custody. I would have never killed my mother just to collect the inheritance, he said to the police officers. The investigators had doubt about his good faith because on the day of his mother's death, the young 29 year old man exhibited very strange behavior. Although usually quite reserved, on more than one occasion, Gene was seen smiling smugly to himself. Such an attitude also viewed as being suspicious. Was he really hiding? I don't tend to show my emotions very often. That must be the explanation. People must have misinterpreted the fact that I was smiling. I was in a state of shock. I didn't know what was going on around me or what was I doing, he explained. Aside from the matter of inheritance, could there possibly have been another reason That might have driven the son to commit the unthinkable? Was there a reason why he resented his mother so much that it could have incited him into viciously murdering her? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? However, there was one piece of information that proved his innocence, the time of his mother's death. The medical examiner stated that the death of Mrs. Bao likely occurred between 8 and 9 in the morning. When the firefighters arrived on the premises, they found breakfast still on the table. By the time Jean had already been gone for quite a while, he explained that he had awakened at 5 o'clock in the morning and that he arrived at work at around 6 a.m., which will later be substantiated primary as a result of fracking his telephone calls as well as to the testimonies of his colleagues who all confirmed that Gene Bao was with them and that he was never absent at any point throughout the whole morning. It should also be pointed out that he definitely did not fit the profile of a criminal. There is quite an obvious discrepancy between Jean's rather spineless personality and the vicious hatred that drove someone to pick up a knife and stab Beatrice 36 times, recalled an investigative reporter. From then on, Jean Bao was eliminated from the list of suspects and the investigation continued to move forward. Now let's delve a bit deeper into the personal lives of the Bao family to get an understanding of what really went on behind the scenes in this mother son relationship. In Dernbach, Mrs. Bao and her son made a rather unique couple. Yes, it was true that they adored each other, and yes, one was never without the other. But the reality was somewhat more nuanced. Beatrice always had a say in everything. There were things that she didn't tolerate. She ordered Jean about, and he had to comply without trying to negotiate. Mrs. Bao would never allow him to stand up to her, recalled Yannick Schuler, Beatrice's first cousin. Was she a castrating mother? In a way, yes, she was. Mrs. Bao was far from the portrait of an active grandmother who was grumpy but not mean. Rather, she was described by her relatives as an authoritative woman who was meddlesome, temperamental, and who made life difficult for her only son who was incapable of standing up to her. The proof of this holds were her constant telephone harassment. In fact, Beatrice never hesitated to indentate her son with messages if he were even a few minutes late. The same was true when he went out with his friends. She would flood him with text messages full of blame. What are you doing going out again? Are you buying round of drinks for your friends? Is that what you do with all your hard-earned money? Beatrice had made emotional blackmail her greatest weapon. She reapproached her son almost on a daily basis, which terrorized him and left him with no other choice but to curtail his night's outs with friends whom he was often forced to abandon. For example, on one such occasion, he wrote to one of them, ''I got chewed out by mom, sorry, but I won't be able to go out with you tonight.'' When he met Earl and Arth, things began to get more complicated. It would take him just over a year before he finally found the courage to introduce his girlfriend to his mother. Jean kept putting off the introduction for a long time despite the pleas from Arlene, who was unable to understand her boyfriend's attitude. In truth, he had never told Arlene about his mother or about the nature of the dominant submissive relationship. It was October 2016, and the month of October in Alsace meant the Bure Festival, the very important October fest. Was when liquid gold flowed freely and when sauerkraut and sausage dishes took center stage. This was the occasion that Jean Bao chose to introduce his girlfriend to his mother and the rest of the family. But the meeting did not go as planned or as he hoped. Jean thought that he was going to do the right thing when he and his girlfriend arrived arm in arm at the restaurant where Oktoberfest was being held in Dernbach. The young couple decided to dress up as Tyroleans. Jean wore black velvet shorts, a frilly shirt and a plumbed hat while Elaine wore a ruffled white skirt, a lace, headdress and a blue apron. When Beatrice saw them, she was almost in shock. Throughout the evening, she wore a long face as someone had died. In fact, which did not escape anyone's notice. Usually, she loved the October fest celebrations, but now she was almost disgusted. She was unable to see anybody else around her. Her eyes were fixated on the young couple, on her son who was about to slip through her fingers on this very flirtatious young blonde girl who was clinging on to him. After this infamous first evening out, Beatrice never made an effort to get along with her son's girlfriend and when she found out that their relationship was serious and they had planned to marry, she became ill and sank into a depression. There's something not right about her. I don't like her and she seems egoistical. She's taking advantage of my idiot son, of his kindness and his good heart. She can find it one day to her cousin Schuler. The reason why Beatrice Spouse seemed to judge Aline Art so harshly was that she did not believe the young woman's background to be suitable for her son. The old woman grew up in a traditional Catholic environment where the divorce was perceived as the ultimate sin. It was an embarrassing failure for a woman who was unable to protect her most precious possession her home. Yet it just so happened that this young woman was divorced and she was much older and much more experienced than her son. Furthermore, she already had two children. In short, all of this together disqualified her from being the perfect Mrs. Bao in Beatrice's eyes. True to her sharp tongued nature, she spoke her mind to her son. You couldn't have chosen a girl without a family history, without children or any other attachments. No, it definitely had to be her. Whether it was Aline or someone else, in truth, Granny Football didn't want her daughter-in-law at all. She couldn't get used to the idea that her son was an adult, that he had his own needs, that he wanted to leave the rest and cut the umbilical cord once and for all. As the relationship between Aline and Jean grew closer and more serious, the young beautician started to get more involved in the day-to-day operations of the Dernbach Club. She even played on the women's team and completely immersed herself in the life of the club. Not only did she coach the children's team, but she also took care of cleaning their locker rooms, doing the club's laundry, shopping for the snack bar, delivering the announcements, typing all correspondence, and dealing with all the administrative paperwork. Soon her presence became almost indispensable, and she started to steal the spotlight from granny football. Aline was a real go-getter. She could be heard from far away and everyone obeyed her. Recall the neighbor of the bows. Yet there was a whole other version of this charming young lady. Some described her as a strong-willed, volatile, almost angry woman who liked to be the center of attention and who started to take up much space, maybe too much space, within the club. With Jean, her fiancé, things changed significantly. While she had agreed to negotiate at the beginning of their relationship, now she wanted everything for herself. There is no question of sharing with him, with Beatrice or even with his friends. She made no effort to hide her desire to cut him off from a circle of friends. It was the beginning of a power play. As usual, Jean never complained. In order to get her away, Aline had a very brilliant strategy. She dominated her boyfriend through the use of sex. She wanted it often and demanded his affection and sensuality she sent him text messages on WhatsApp that were quite racy, where she made no secret of her sexual hunger and desire for him. Jean, who was completely captivated, quite literally fell into the trap. He began to neglect his mother and his friends, with whom he became cold and distant. Now his life revolved around Elaine and the sexual blackmail that she used to blind him to her. Ever since the first day she met her at the beer festival, Beatrice Baff found it difficult to stomach this woman. As time passed, her hatred towards her only grew stronger. In fact, she didn't even call Elaine by her name, but rather Die Andrea, which in the Alsatian dialect meaning the other. From that moment on, the war had been declared between Beatrice Bau and Arlene Arth, not just a usual mother in law against a daughter in law rivalry, but a genuine mutual resentment born of hatred and contempt. Jean found himself trapped in the middle of these two rivals and no longer knew which camp he should align himself with in order to not end up hurting one or the other. But this increasing tension was not a good sign. Things had gotten so bad that for one woman to exist, the other necessarily had to disappear. During the autopsy of Beatrice's body, the forensic examiners came across some troubling evidence. Her fingers and forearms displayed traces of scratches and signs of physical abuse, which proved that Granny Football fought until her last breath against her assailants. There was a suspicious-looking scratch of about 10 centimeters found on Aline Art's forearm, which raised several questions. When she was interrogated, the hairdresser explained the circumstance that led to this bruise. It was Beatrice who scratched me, but she didn't mean to. When I was at her house the other day, when the gypsies were hanging around, she opened the door to keep them away. Her tone got louder, and she then grabbed my arm very tightly. She was scared, and that's how she gave me the scratch. Hmm, sure it was. Aline Art's story lacked credibility, with a good reason. Everyone who knew Beatrice Bao agreed that she was not the kind of person to panic. Despite her son's short stature, he wasn't afraid of anyone or any situation, no matter how dangerous it appeared to be. The investigation soon illuminated the gypsy couple as a suspect, and subsequently began to watch Aline Art more closely. As if to make amendments, she started telling the story of how she got scratched to everyone around her who would listen, the neighbors, Jean's friends and relatives, as well as her customers at the beauty salon. She felt the constant need to discuss it in a very disinterested tone, as if she wanted to get as many people on her side possible. But this strategy, far from vindicating her, had the opposite effect and only reinforces suspicion about her. Then, there were some other details that really hit the mark. As a result of their firearm being activated, the investigators knew that the murderer came back to the house twice, once at 8.30 to kill the victim and then a second time to set the house on fire around 1. Twice, that was a lot. However, Aline Arth just happened to be in the area when the crime was taking place. She tried to explain herself. I went to check to see if the doors to the club's locker rooms were locked properly. Her explanation was not very convincing. The criminal news was beginning to tighten around Aline Art. The public prosecutor's office in Strasbourg did not believe in the coincidence that she related. Moreover, her testimony revealed several irregularities and the so-called accidental scratch was anything but credible. There was also additional evidence that was much more troubling. The license plate number of the van owned by the two gypsies who came, according to her, to rob Beatrice was fake. By doing a bit of research, the police discovered that the number really did exist. Its owner was a man who lived in Pyrenees, Atlantiques and who had never set a foot in Alsace. Aline intrigued the police more and more. Her presence at Beatrice's house long before her death became suspicious. She was then called a second time to the police headquarters, where she underwent a forensic examination of the scratch on her forearm and was subsequently remanded into custody. Trapped by her own contradictory confessions, Aline Arth claimed her innocence. In Dernbach, the news of her arrest stirred a terrible shock. For Beatrice's family and her son, it was like as the sky had fallen on their heads. Brought before a forensic psychiatrist, Aline Art was described as being a completely normal and well-adjusted woman. However, the expert could not deny the fact that some extremely violent emotions could have been manifested at the time of the crime. The accumulation of all these months of tension and resentment might have eventually exploded with Aline definitely acting like a time bomb. However, there was a lack of motive, the straw that broke the camel's back. That took her from the thought to action something that would have driven Aline Art to act like the bloodthirsty murderer that she had become. And the investigators discovered the reason for this motive by going over two months prior to the crime in January 2017, during the normal winter vacation period. Just as they usually did every year, Jean Bao and his mother took a week-long vacation at a ski resort in Austria, but this year, there was one small change in the routine. Aline and her two children wanted to join them, Granny Football had already made her decision. A big no. It was out of the question that Dre be permitted to accompany them with her brats. Although her bride was wounded, Aline Art still stuck with her plan of spending her vacation with her lover. She then made an offer. She would generously agree to pay for the Beatrice's trip and in a way give her some time off. Tension subsided as Granny Football calmed down, but not for very long. Once they had arrived at their destination, Aline and her children, on one hand, Jean and his mother on the other, saw the room that they would be sharing for their whole week of skiing. Without any consideration for Aline, Beatrice demanded that her son sleeps in the same room with her, a fact which infuriated Aline so much that she gave her boyfriend an ultimatum. If he did so, then she would leave him for good. He had no other choice but to give in. As a result of this incident, their vacation was spent filled with so much tension that the two women did not speak one word to each other during their entire stay. Upon their return to Dernbach, Beatrice bowed to her son aside and ordered him to leave Elaine. It was clearly a case of her or me. True to his apathetic nature and his inability to make decisions, Jean continued to be torn between the wishes of his mother and the more pressing ones of his fiance. Elaine was resentful, and so was Beatrice. Jean, whose affections they had been fighting over until then, now took a back seat. Now it was a matter of who would bring down the other and make them submit, just for the pleasure of their victory. However, Elaine agreed to make up one last concession. Up until then, she had always felt the hatred that Beatrice had for her, but she wanted to hear from her own mouth, the reason for this animosity. That's when she made the decision to pay her a visit with Jean on April 3, 2017. The young woman wanted to get a clearer explanation on the matter. However, once she was at Beatrice's house, the tone changed dramatically. The words that they had been holding back for months now came pouring out with violence. Aline, who was now quite worked up, asked Beatrice the fateful question. Just what is it that you have against me? Beatrice responded with the contempt. You want to know something? You're nothing. You're absolutely nothing to me. I'll never accept you into my family as a daughter-in-law, and I'll never accept your kids either. So now, scram. Get out of my house. Aline left the house slamming the door and returned to her beauty shop. Her anger never subsided the whole afternoon. She knew that, sooner or later, Beatrice Bow would end up getting her son back. She also knew that Jean lacked the character to make a full decision. Furthermore, he never even budged when she left the house in tears. Undoubtedly, she was the one who was the loser. She had hoped for so much from the relationship, but it turned out to be a real disaster, worse than her first marriage. Arlene Arth was at the end of her rope. She felt a terrible emptiness. Her life was nothing but a series of failures. In terms of financial stability, it was a catastrophe too, and with the love life, on which she had pinned a few hopes, was starting to crumble. Beatrice's razor-sharp and cruel words still resonated in her ears. She could feel the anger rising in her. She had the urge to destroy, to do harm, and to get revenge. That fateful day on April 3, 2017 was when everything changed. Three days later, Aline Arth killed a person who represented the obstacle to her happiness. According to psychiatric experts, the fact that she literally removed the face of her victim meant that she symbolically wanted to dehumanize her to remove all traces of Beatrice from her memory forever. The investigation into Beatrice Bowe's murder lasted three years, three years in which Aline Arth, the primary suspect, remained in custody. She pleaded her innocence during her first hearing, which her lawyers encouraged based on the fact that she, aside from the scratches on her forearm, there is no other tangible evidence that could incriminate her. On June 29, 2020, the accused appeared before the criminal court in Basreen. From the outset of the proceedings, the lawyers set the tone. Their client was innocent. At the victim's home, investigators found no trace of DNA belonging to Arlene Arth or vice versa. It was as it suggested. She had removed her mother-in-law's face. Then there would have been traces of blood on her. But people who saw her that day reported that she had not changed clothes. The contents of her closet were sprayed with luminol but revealed no trace of blood belonging to the victim. Every detail about this case gave the impression that many of the things that would likely establish the hairdresser's guilt seemed to be missing. No one had seen her leave Beatrice Spouse home on that day. No trace of DNA and no video or telephone tapping existed. Elements that usually heavily tipped the balance in criminal cases. Seated in the defender's chair, looking tense with her hair long, Arlene Arp found it difficult to hide her grief and anguish. Her silence and stony demeanor did nothing to help her gain favor with the member of the jury who had already made up their minds. The scratch on Arlene's forearm and her presence at the scene of the crime was enough to incriminate her. After the deliberations concluded, the former hairdresser and mother of the two children were eventually sentenced to 18 years in prison. However, the opposing counsel had asked for life imprisonment. Since her conviction on July 1, 2020, Aline Arth has appealed the court's decision. She continued to assert her innocence and maintained that she did not kill Mrs. Bao. Her lawyers feared that a heavier sentence will be the only outcome of the appeal, but Aline Arth still wishes to try one last time. In Dernbach, where most people believed that she was guilty, expressed relief that she was never acquitted. A mother who was too clingy and possessive, a child who was a mama's boy, tied to her apron strings, and an intrusive girlfriend. The case of a lean art is the symbol of a drama caused by a toxic threesome that never should have happened. The dialogue of the death that persisted among the three protagonists eventually released a visceral hatred and ended in a tragic epilogue. We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.